Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Steve, our teacher, has mentioned Hebrews on a number of occasions. It was even mentioned last week, as we heard from uh, the uh, study of the wheat and the tares, that it's a book written because the Christians uh, the, who had been Jewish and were Jewish Christians were tending to fall back. They were not ending well. And the book of Hebrews, uh, whomever the author might be, uh, actually seemed to be addressing that, uh, particularly in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And here's what the writer says. Someone has said, and you've heard it said, that when in the Bible, because there were no chapter divisions, verse divisions, when you read the word wherefore or the word therefore, you need to stop and consider what it's there for. And it's always there to connect what's about to be said, which was said to us last week again. So these are concluding words to what has just been written. I want to give you just a little bit of backdrop to these two or three verses uh, before we begin. You'll notice, uh, first of all, it says in the King James, for seeing that we're encircled about with such a great cloud of witnesses. That's the King James Version. The word cloud uh, has uh, caused some people to get the idea that this phrase, cloud of witnesses, is a reference to people who are already in heaven. In other words, the idea is that they're kind of looking down on us, and they're observing how we're doing. And when the going gets tough, they're saying, come on, you can do it, you can do it, keep going, and so on. Now, I don't know whether the people in heaven are watching what's going on in our lives on this earth right now or not. I rather doubt it. I don't know how in the world you can be happy in heaven have to watch the mess that's going on right now, okay? But I do know that the phrase cloud of witnesses in the Greek language is not a reference so much to the people in heaven as it is to the people in Hebrews 11. You see, in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the author is given the lives, the names, the testimony of so many people who had a real relationship of faith with God and who suffered because of it, who had a tough time because of it, and yet they endured. And the latter verses of, verse of chapter 11 are some of the best verses that I think you'll ever read in the New Testament. So the cloud of witnesses is probably a reference to all of the people who were named in Hebrews 11. They had it rough, and they kept going too. And so... Uh, the writer says, seeing that we're encircled about with that kind of witness, let us, and then they mention a couple of things, and it says, let us uh, run with patience the race that lies before us. Patience is how King James says it, but that's really not the best word. The NIV you heard a moment ago says it better. Uh, let us run with endurance. It's a stronger word than patience. It actually means to run uh, under the effect of difficulty, to run when things are going tough, to keep on running, to keep on going. And by the way, have you been a Christian long enough to know that being a Christian doesn't ex exempt you from things getting tough? 
I mean, I found out that sometimes things are tougher by virtue of being a Christian than they are when you're not a Christian. I've just discovered that personally. In fact, I did a study one time of trouble or tough times, suffering, whatever, and I discovered that there are three kinds of suffering. There's what someone has called the Jesus kind of suffering, and that's because of devotion. There's no doubt Jesus suffered some tough times. It was really um, touch and go with a lot of people relationally with him, even in his own family. They had a tendency to not believe on him, to believe in him, and it was tough. And then, of course, all of the persecution that he faced. So those are the Jesus kind of troubling things because of devotion. And when you're devoted to the Father, doing his will, you can bet, if I were a betting Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever, that's what I say, you could bet that you're going to face tough times, okay? But they're not just the Jesus kind of tough times because of devotion, but there's the Job kind of tough times, and that's because of development. In other words, most of us need to grow up. Most of us need to be uh, uh, shaped and formed and fashioned in some ways that we're not yet there. And the scripture indicates that it is hardships and tough times that oftentimes are the tools that God's able to use to bring us into the shape and the image and the mold that he wants us to be in our spiritual journey. And so Job, and by the way, I'm convinced that the theme of the book of Job is not why good people suffer, but it's how to make a good person better. Because Job was a man of faith at the beginning of the book, but at the end of the book, he was a man who was much better because he was able to believe God in the midst of everything imaginable. And tough times tend to do that. I don't think tough times actually cause a person to lose their faith as much as tough times cause us to discover whether our faith is genuine or not so that it can grow and can develop. So there's the, Jonah kind, the Job kind of uh, suffering or tough times, and that's because of development. And then, of course, there's the Jonah kind, and that's because of disobedience. Jonah wound up in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea because he refused to go uh, obediently to the city to deliver the message. And sometimes we face tough times because of silly choices that we've made, right? A.W. Pink made this statement one time. He said, everybody who knows Jesus is going to suffer sometime in their life. But if you're really committed to Jesus as Lord of all, uh, it'll be wonderful because you'll know it's either because of devotion or because of development and not because of disobedience. And I think that's what we all need to remember. And so the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, seeing that we're encircled about with all these people who had it rough and they kept going, let us run with patience or endurance the race that lies before us. Now that race is not a reference to find out whether you go to heaven when you die or not. You don't run in a race so that you hope when you die you go to heaven. We know that. We trust Christ as our Lord and our Savior, and we're placed in the race to run as a Christian. And the writer of Hebrews, observing the Jewish believers who were going back into the law, was wanting to encourage them 
to end well. And so I'm going to talk to you today about this subject, this matter of ending well. Um, I'm going to be speaking today, of, of course, and maybe two or three other times, or a couple of times, uh, in the ten weeks of Steve's absence. And I've had to think of what I would share, and I've decided that what I'm going to do is talk about the two or three, depending on how many times I speak, of the more significant things that I've learned personally. I pastored 40 years. I've been in 20 years of, uh, of conference ministry across uh, a religious group, and that doesn't mean a whole lot. I wasn't raised in the church. My dad was an alcoholic. I wasn't converted until I was a teenager. But then I started preaching when I was 15. I was called a pastor of my first church when I was 17, and that's all I've ever done. Okay, uh, so what I've learned is a ton of stuff, uh, most of it the hard way, trial and error, failure and picking myself up and dusting myself off and going back on in the walk and the journey. So what I want to talk to you about today and the next couple of times are two or three of the more significant things I've learned and I hope it'll be a help to you, maybe an encouragement to you. Maybe that's what Sunday school is to be a part of or a community group. And the first thing is about ending well. Ending well. The writer of Hebrews was observing. These Jewish Christians were not ending well. Some of them were wanting to go back to the law. And so he encouraged them to end well, now this is important to me because Mary and I are in our fourth quarter of life and ministry. Now, I don't know how long quarters last, but I did a little research this week, and they say that the fourth quarter is when you're 75 to 100. If you get to 100, it's overtime. Okay? Well, we're in the fourth quarter. In fact, we're in the fourth quarter of a lot more than just our Christian life. 59 years ago tomorrow was when we were married. So we're in the fourth quarter of our, of our marriage relationship. Thank you. Mary needed that. So I appreciate that. And Mary and I are not going to leave our kids much of, a, of, of, a, of an inheritance. You remember me talking to you about uh, Leroy, the guy that I introduced you to? Uh, and I told you that Leroy just taught me that leaving an inheritance, because he and his brother were arguing about it, is not one of the best ideas, so we're spending everything we've ever earned, see. But we do want to leave a legacy that's of a spiritual nature. We're not going to leave much financially to our kids. But a spiritual legacy is what we do want to leave. And that is, in our later years of a marriage, of a life, and so on, we want to be more merciful, more gracious, uh, more loving, more perceptive, more discerning than we've ever been before in our walk with the Lord. Amen? And I'll bet you that everybody in this room wants the same thing. Well, how do you end your journey with Jesus with some kind of assurance that that can be real in your life? The writer of Hebrews is going to help us out. The first thing he says is this. Let us, there it is, lay aside every weight. Now, what in the world is a weight? Whatever it is, you've got to lay it aside if you're going to end well 
in your walk, in your living with Jesus. We're going to have to remove every weight in order to end well. Now, what is a weight? Well, whatever it is, it isn't sin. Because the next phrase says, and the sin which so easily beset us, you see. So what is a weight? A weight is something that is not sinful, but it has become something not helpful to our walk with Jesus. In fact, it has even become maybe a hindrance to our walk with Jesus. Do you remember 2 Kings chapter 18? Hezekiah had just been made king of the nation. And he was 25 years old, ruled for 29 years. First thing he did was begin to tear down all of the false god, the idols to the false god. And one of the things he tore down was the brass serpent. Now you remember what the brass serpent was. It was a gift from God. It was the thing God told Moses to create when those fiery serpents went among the children of Israel and bit them and they were dying from the poisonous bites. And God told Moses, uh, form a brass a serpent, put it, impale it on a pole and hold it up. Now we know hindsight that it's a picture of the Lord Jesus bearing our sin, all that. But the, the fact is it was this pole with a brass serpent and when he held it up, they looked and they were healed. What a blessing. A gift from God. Now, just about a thousand years later, Hezekiah is destroying that serpent. Why is he doing it? Because the people had begun to worship the thing God gave rather than the God who gave it. It had become the object of their worship rather than a tool that directed them to the one that they worshiped. you understand what I'm saying? And so I think that's probably the best picture of what a weight really is. It's something that may be good and even a gift from God. It's a wonderful thing, but it can eventually, if we're not careful to weigh things correctly, become a hindrance to our walk rather than a help. So how would that equate to what we have today, that brass serpent? What, what could be a good thing that might become a hindrance today? Can I be real honest with you? I think going to church can become a hindrance. I really do. And I say that because personally, I have to confess, there came a time in my own life when I discovered that I love to preach about Jesus more than I love the Jesus about whom I preached. Are you catching the difference there? I was caught up in the things that I did on a Sunday or in a gathered uh, situation to the degree that I had lost sight of the one for whom all of those were simply tools that would make me direct my focus to the one who was my redeemer. Now, that doesn't mean that the brass servant was evil. doesn't mean that going to church is bad. I've lived my life encouraging people to gather and to come to church. But in the ending well scenario, we're going to have to be certain that going to church never takes the place of our genuine, real relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus 
who abides within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Does, does that make sense? Because that can happen. You see, Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is not anything that we do. Christianity is who we are because of the grace and the mercy and the redemption of the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a living relationship with him. It was mentioned last week in a beautiful way. It's a 24-7 deal. We're related to him. We literally live in the presence of the Father who loves us because of his Son in our hearts and the Holy Spirit having ripped apart the veil that keeps us separated from him. We live in his presence. We're in his presence right now gathered. This is called the church, the gathering. We are the church when we're scattered. We're the sanctuary. He dwells in his sanctuary. When we leave the sanctuary this morning after service, he doesn't stay behind. God doesn't stay behind. He indwells us. And we're his sanctuary. And so anything that becomes a tool that would rob us of our vision of who Jesus is can be a hindrance instead of a help. And the writer of Hebrews knows that the law and the weight of the law can rob these Jewish Christians of the reality of the relationship they have with the one who is their Lord and their Savior. Does that make sense? And so the scripture says the first thing we need to do is be willing to remove every weight. Well, the question has to come to my mind then, what kind of relationship do we have with the Father? In other words, if Christianity is a relationship, not going to church, that's a good tool. And we need never to miss that tool. It's a good thing. It's a gift. And especially a fellowship like this, it's a blessing beyond measure. Trust me, I go all over the country to churches and we're blessed beyond measure in our gathering here. But the point is Christianity is not that because you can go to church and not even be a believer. You can go to a gathering and not be a true believer, as so well pointed out last Sunday. And so, what is our relationship with the Father? Now, it isn't going to church, or reading our Bible, or even praying, because you can do any one of those three and not even know the Lord. Being a Christian is a relationship where we know that we're loved of him, that he has accepted us, that he has forgiven us, that he has come to indwell us, and that he even likes us. I think I told you last time I'll remind you of, if God has a refrigerator in heaven today, your picture's on the front door. My picture's on the front door. He's got a huge Westinghouse in heaven. Just like your grandparents, your picture, your grandkids' picture are on the door of your refrigerator. You say, no, Brother Paul, you don't understand. I, when I'm here, I'm one thing. When I'm gone, I tend to do other things. No, you don't understand. He doesn't love us and accept us and forgive us and indwell us on the basis of how we behave. He does all of that on the basis of how Jesus behaved. And he did it wonderfully well. It's called the cross and an empty tomb. 
And when we've trusted him on the basis of our faith in him, he's come to live in us and that relationship is real. Now, we go to church, read our Bible, preach sermons, all of those kinds of things. Because they're wonderful things to do, helpful things. They will even help us in our journey. But they're never to take the place of who Jesus really is as our very life every day that we live. Does that make sense? Second thing he says is this. Let us remove every weight and reject every entanglement. Now, the King James says, uh, let us remove every weight and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the sin which does so easily beset us. That's not the normal word for sin. This is the word which means to be entangled. In fact, the NIV said it correctly. That will entangle us, kind of like a barbed wire on a fence. You guys ever gone hunting with a partner? And when you're out in the field hunting birds or whatever and you've got your shotgun, you come to a barbed wire fence and it's property you're supposed to be on. We'll assume you're doing it honestly. And you're going to go over. You hand your rifle to your buddy and you climb over the barbed wire fence. Then you take your gun. Why? Because as you go over, one of those little barbs could catch you and trip you. And if the gun's in your hand, it could go off. Now, that's literally the picture of what this word sin means. Let us remove every weight, those things that are good, but if we're not careful, can become harmful instead of helpful. And let us be sure and not become snared or entangled with things in that fourth quarter in order to end well. Well, what can entangle us in our lives as Christians? What can ensnare us? Can I tell you? Again, it's not what we normally think of. For instance, I think one of the biggest snares to my life as a Christian is my marriage. I think a second biggest snare to my life as a Christian are my children. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, I certainly don't mean that it's bad to have that. But I can become ensnared in a marriage relationship or ensnared in a relationship with the children, I even think I can become ensnared in a relationship with another person in a congregation like this in a way that will be damaging to me. In a way that will cause me to stumble and fall. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. This relationship I talked about where the Father loves us, accepts us, forgives us. He enjoys us. He even likes us. He's come to indwell us. He's grieved when we sin, of course. He's brokenhearted. His Holy Spirit is even willing to let us know when we've sinned. And when we're willing to homologate or say the same thing about it, that it is, in fact, sin. Why, we enjoy our relationship with him again. That's the kind of relationship we have. But if we ever look to anything else as a source for life, we become ensnared. In other words, I used to think that because of my marriage, life was worth living. In other words, she loved me. I was special to her. She even acted like she liked me. 
That's wonderful. Except when all at once she would do something that would say, I don't love you, like I felt like she should. Or I don't like you, like I felt like she must or should. My life was ended. It was over. It wasn't worth living. Are you following me here? In other words, a marriage can become the source for what you believe makes life worth living. Now, everybody needs to know they're loved. Everybody needs to know that they're special, that it matters that you get out of bed in the morning. That's what the Father is to us. He loves us. We're special to Him and all of that. But if I ever let a marriage become that, I see it then as the source of what makes my life worth living. And I attach an umbilical cord to that source and I draw from it what makes my life worth living. And you know what happens? I am on the course to stumbling and failing in the fourth quarter. Why? Because God never intended my marriage to be the source of what makes my life worth living. God intends for himself to be the source for what makes my life worth living. So I can be a resource to someone else in life, in a marriage. My children, the same thing. I used to think if my children don't turn out well, don't make the best decisions, don't do it right, then my life isn't worth living, especially as a preacher. What will people think if a preacher's kids don't turn out well? Do you know what I discovered? I had attached an umbilical cord to my children, and I was sucking from them what I needed for my life to be what I thought it needed to be, and there's no way they can be God and satisfy everything. There's no way she can be. It marries. Family is not intended for that. I'm to find my source in the Father himself through the Lord Jesus so I can be to a wife and be to children what God intends me to be in human relationships. You see, Christianity is not doing anything. It is being someone who is loved, accepted, and forgiven, and learning to be to other people the same thing in a marriage, in a family, in a church fellowship, and so on. That's why they're called in Matthew 5, 5 6, and 7, the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. It's because it's a matter of being to other people what the Father is being to you. And the writer of Hebrews is hinting at that with the word ensnared. We can be ensnared with things. Now, we, we see it in lost people. In other words, somebody drives a BMW. Nothing wrong with driving a BMW unless that BMW becomes the source of what makes you think life is worth living. You can always spot those folks because they'll use two parking places at Walmart to park it. So no one will dent it. You understand? And if they came out and found a den in their BMW, they would lose faith, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentlemen. Goodness, why? Because that BMW was the source of what made life worth living. Now, there's nothing wrong with driving a BMW if you can afford, afford it and, and uh, you know, and not cheat the Lord out of finance and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, it can become a source for something. And we laugh at them. We've laughed at them. The home they bill, you know. $5 million home. They invite you to lunch. Well, let me tell you something. Don't walk in with mud on your feet. 
Because if you walk in mud on their carpet, they lose love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Why? Because the source of what made their life worth living was not anything but the house that they lived in. We laugh at it. Their careers, their lawyers, doctors, teachers, whatever. And the source of what makes life worth living is what they do in their career. All at once, it's terminated. There's a downsizing. They lose love, joy, peace, long suffering. Why? Because it was the source. And we laugh at it. But in the Christian context, the same can be true of a ministry, of a marriage, of children. Are you following me here? Because the simple truth is, Christianity is who we are by the grace and the goodness and the mercy of the Father through the Lord Jesus and in the power of His Spirit we learn to be to other people what He is being to us. And that is the best way to end your walk with Jesus, learning to be to others what the Father has been to you. Now there's one other thing and I'm almost finished here but I've got to say the last thing. By the way, uh, this is what makes the end more enjoyable than the beginning in your journey with Jesus. Learning to be to others what the Father has always been being to you. Bob and Inez Bozart, they were in their late 80s when I was their pastor, First Baptist Church, Borger, Texas. Bob and Inez, both white-headed, I walked, drove up on the parking lot one Sunday morning. They were walking in front of me. And I said, hi, Bob, hi, Inez. And they turned around, and they were both crying. I'm their pastor. I ran over, Bob, Inez, what's wrong? Oh, nothing, pastor, nothing. Everything's wonderful. Sweetheart and I, he always called her sweetheart. Sweetheart and I were just talking, driving up, walking up. How wonderful the Lord is. We, uh, in evangelism explosion, learning to share our faith. We're learning the word of God. And, and oh, he said, it's just the greatest time of our life. He said, we just, it's just so joyful. And I hugged their neck. They went on in. I went in praying, Lord. When I get in my fourth quarter, now this was back in the day when I th thought the fourth quarter started when you're 60. <laughs> and I was only 30 then. But I prayed, Lord, when I'm in my fourth quarter, make me like Bob and Inez Bozart. Not proud of how much scripture I know. Not proud of how many sermons I've preached. Not proud of how many years I've served but how excited I am about the reality of who Jesus is in my life, who the Father's being to me because I'm learning more about him than I've ever known before. That's what the fourth quarter is all about. And I close with this. The writer of Hebrews says this, if we're going to end well, we're going to have to be willing to remove every weight. In other words, those good things that can become harmful things don't have to be. Just keep on doing them. Uh, right, with the right heart. In other words, you're just tool. There is a law for Christians. It's the law written in our heart. We have a law to live by. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is not evil. It's good, but it's not the source of life. You see? So we have to remove every weight. We have to reject any entanglement that will confuse us to thinking that person this person, the other person, that thing, this thing, the other thing will bring me what makes life worth living. 
where extramarital relationships start. It's where mar why marriage vows are broken oftentimes. Because I'm looking for something, someone who will make my life worth living. But the writer of Hebrews says one more thing. Let us not only remove every weight and reject every entanglement, but restrict our vision. Scripture says, looking off, NIV said contemplating. It's a strong Greek word. It means to look away from yourself, looking off to Jesus. In other words, we restrict our vision to him alone. We don't even allow the, a gathered church, a pastor, an evangelist, a Bible teacher, anybody to become the focus of our attention. They're just tools. Thank the Lord for them and for the tools they are. They show us him in ways we've never known. But our focus is on him. So that when we walk away on a Sunday morning, we get up on a Monday morning or Tuesday morning, our focus is not on whether we went to church or where we will go next Sunday, as much as who Jesus is right now, in me and through me, being to me so I can be what he intends. It's renewed focus. You see, renewing our focus, restricting our entanglements, rejecting the weights that would hinder us. Now, most of you are not old enough like I am to be in the fourth quarter. Most of you are too young. But you'll be there one of these days. And I'm joking, of course. But isn't it fun when we get there to know that it can be the most exciting, the most thrilling, the most Christ-conscious period we will have ever lived. I close with this story I love. His name is uh, Stephen, no, John Stephen Aquari. He's a marathoner. 1968, Mexico Games. He was one of 57 men who started in the marathon, pre-Olympic trials. A third of the way into the marathon, John Stephen uh, was bumped. He stumbled, he tripped, he dislocated a shoulder. He damaged his knee severely. He got up, continued the journey. The marathon was one that year that in that meet in a two-hour, 24-minute, and 24-second time. One hour and ten minutes, or one hour and ten, uh, yes, one hour and ten minutes after the winning, the race was over. John Stephen entered the Coliseum. Limping, running, finishing. Coliseum had been filled all day, but now it was down to several thousand. But when he entered the Coliseum, spectators tell us that the entire Coliseum stood to their feet applauding. You know the reason? Oh, he didn't win the race. He wasn't first, he wasn't second, he wasn't third. He finished. He was being interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter said, tell me why. What is it? What was it that kept you going? And he said, oh, 
my countrymen did not send me 5,000 miles to Mexico City to start a race. They sent me to finish it. I'm not interested in coliseums applauding. I'm not even interested in congregations applauding anymore. I'm not interested in who wins first, second, or third. What I'm really interested in is what the writer of Hebrews was concerned about. The Lord didn't call me and redeem me for the journey I have with his son, the Lord Jesus. The Father didn't call me for that journey with Jesus to start it, but to finish it, and to finish it well, so that one of these days when we stand before him, we'll be able to hear him say, King James says, well done, good and faithful servant. The Burleson translation is, at a boy, at a girl, way to go. You finished it well. That's what I'm wanting. Amen? Let's pray and we'll be finished. Father, sometimes we forget what the journey's about. And so thank you for the writer of Hebrews. I know his concern was for those Jewish Christians. Our concern today is the same concern, but it's for ourselves. That we finish well. And under the anointing of your spirit, Father, our desire is to understand all we need for you to be in us and through us, all you've redeemed us to be. Thank you for Steve and for the teaching we hear, the teaching we heard last week, the teaching we'll hear in this interim time. Thank you, Father, that we're all just tools, that you're the one that's special. You're the one that's the focus. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we ask and pray this today. And I say amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you.